Go and be seated. There's an irony in our worship structure. I don't know if you noticed it. Psalm 66. And before our lesson, we sang Psalm 66. And I'm just glad there's four sixes there, not three. That's all I'm saying about that. On the 19th of October, 1944, a guy named Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian physician and psychologist, along with many other people, was sent to the concentration camp in Auschwitz. And there as he interacted with and he watched fellow prisoners, he began to ask himself the question, what is sustaining people here? In the midst of all of this tragedy, in the presence of all of the death and destruction, how is it that any of us are able to go on day after day? And he, as he survived that experience, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he concluded that those who endured the hardship did so because they had an enduring hope in the future. That there was this recognition of something beyond the concentration camp. In his book, he mentions how he resonates with Friedrich Nietzsche, who once wrote, He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. And, and we probably take this for granted because it's embedded so much in our belief system, but Christianity and, and our faith that has been inherited from a Jewish religion believes that the world is moving towards something. We, we believe that, that, that the storyline is reaching a climax. We believe that the linear events in life will culminate in an eventual fulfillment of all things. The best word I can think of for this is a word that we'll steal from Greek. The word is telos, which is defined as the goal to which a movement is being directed, an end, a goal, or the outcome. If you don't know what the word telos means, pay attention to the definition because we're going to use it an awful lot. What's interesting is that not all of the world religions have a telos in the same essence that Christianity does. A Buddhist writer reflecting on Buddhism says, The Buddha Dharma does not speak of beginnings or ends at all. It is a religion of middles. In fact, it is often called the middle way. So within Buddhism, the, 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 the goal is simply to develop awareness, the ability to see the events that are unfolding. And then to withdraw yourself from those events so that they don't impact or influence you. There is ultimately no movement in the world. And no movement for us as individuals. The Buddhists tell this story to, to emphasize the cyclical, cyclical nature of their faith. That in a Zen monastery, uh, a guy who was training to become a monk decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And so he asked the teacher if he could leave. And the teacher said, of course you can. And the man began to head towards the door, and the teacher said, that's not your door. And so he turned around, and he went towards the other door, and as he got close to the door, the teacher said, that's not your door. And of course, it plays out until he's gone to every door. And finally, then, the teacher looks at him, and he says, if there's no door you can leave by, then sit down. 
And the moral of the story for the Buddhist is we can only be here. We can't leave always here. Do you see how that contrasts to our faith? That there is somewhere to go. That there is a movement and a directionality in our faith and in the world. And that there is a God who is playing out all things for His purposes. Psalm 66, I think, fundamentally reaffirms the movement or the telos of the world. And reminds us we are going somewhere. And we are heading in a very specific direction. And so I'm going to read in a moment Psalm 66 verses 1 through 4. But as as I read it, I I couldn't help but think of all of those um, English teachers who thought that they could teach me how to write. And they would say in the introduction, Craig, tell me what you're going to tell me. Always make sure you tell me where you're going. And that's what verses 1 through 4 do. They give us not just the introduction for the direction of the psalm, but fundamentally for the direction of where all things are heading. So beginning in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing to the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great power, your enemies cringe before you. All the earth worships you. They sing praises to you, sing praises to your name. And I think of Psalm 66 much like a, uh, an invitation that you might receive in the mail for an upcoming party. And as you look at these first four verses, who is the party for? It should be pretty clear, right? This is a party for God. And who is it that's invited to the party? We find repeated in verse 1 and verse 4 that this is for all the earth. There's an invitation that goes across to all of the nations to be a part of this ultimate celebration to which the entire world is moving. This Psalm 66 is very oriented towards those who are outside of Israel's faith. Um, You may not notice in your English translation as well, but there is a, a name for God that's revealed to Moses. Remember that when Moses said, what's your name? And the name that God revealed was this name, Yahweh. It's Y-H-W-H. Now, what our English translations will do to let you know when the personal name of God is being used, they will often write it in all caps, L-O-R-D. The whole thing is capitalized. What's ironic is that this psalm here does not use that personal name of God. It instead uses a more generic name of God, Elohim. But it is in an effort to say to the nations, you're talking about the gods... We'll let you know who that God is. Even in the 8th verse when it says our God, this is not our in terms of possessiveness, like it's our God, not your God, but our God in terms of identity. The God that we're talking about in Psalm 66 is the God of Israel. And so all are invited to participate. And what is it that we'll do at the party? We will make a joyful noise to God. We'll sing of the glory of His name. We will give Him glorious praise. We will speak about His awesome deeds. We will worship Him. And then we're going to do some more singing. The introduction gives a direction not just to where Psalm 66 is heading, but to where everything is heading. Psalm 66 doesn't believe in a cyclical world that simply repeats and repeats with no directionality. It's moving towards something. And so in light of that, in verse 5, we do have the invitation then. Come and see what God has done, His awesome deeds among mortals. 
So, so you know, so there's, there's an event to which the, the psalmist is inviting all people to come and to, to witness to this God who has done awesome deeds. And so then he will refer to one of these kind of classic royal rumbles of the deities. When the God of Israel took on all of the gods of Egypt. And how did that end and culminate? His people walked through on dry ground. God won and defeated all those who were opposed to him, all those who stood against him. And it's as if to say that if this God did that, isn't he worthy of the praise that will ultimately be offered to him? But I find in this section or segment a reminder for all of us. It's a reminder for worship. It's a reminder for evangelism, which is that we need to always be willing to move from general to specific. It's one thing to say, praise God for his awesome deeds, and it's another to begin to chronicle and to say, let me give you some examples of those awesome deeds. If you've ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite, when his friend Pedro is running for class president, Napoleon's got the line. It's going to get everyone to vote for Pedro. So Pedro, at the end of his speech, he says, what? Vote for Pedro, and all your wildest dreams will come true. Now, isn't that a case where you want a few more specifics rather than just a very general promise? See, how often do we speak so much in generalities about God's goodness and God's worthiness and God's praiseworthiness and all those things? And sometimes somebody might say, can you just give me a specific, a story, a time, an event where God did something that was praiseworthy? Remember back to journalism class when you ask the W's, right? Who, what, when, where, how. People want, in the testimony of God, specifics. Because sometimes generalities don't suit. And so what the psalmist does here is he gives these specifics. And the specifics is, first of all, what God did in that deliverance back uh, when he delivered his people from Egypt. But, but it's not just that distant past. And he's going to go on in the 8th verse to give them more reasons why God is worthy of praise. Now, I'm going to let you know, as we read the reasons, it does not resonate with us as modern readers. Here's the reasons the psalmist says why God is worthy of praise. Verse 8 and following. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praises be heard, who has kept us among the living and who has not let our feet slip. So we're on board. Yeah, I get that. That makes sense. But here's the ongoing reasons for God's praise. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. Yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. What I find so ironic about this psalm is that the things that the psalmist finds as praiseworthy are the very questions we ask against God. We would be far more likely to say, if there is a God, will we not be not tested? If there is a God, wouldn't we not be brought into the net? If there is a God, would there not be any burdens on our backs? If there is a God, would they not ride over our heads? If there is a God, would we not go through the fire and water? 
We take suffering as a sign that God somehow is no longer in control. That, that there ultimately isn't any movement or telos or purpose anymore. But here the suffering and hardship and then God's later deliverance is proof of his worthiness to be praised. It's not the only text where we have this sort of an issue. Amos 3.2 I think is another one where, where Amos writes, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore... So God says this, this special relationship he has with his chosen people. And he says, you know, because I have this special relationship with you, therefore. And what does the modern mind begin to do with that, therefore? Therefore, I'm going to give you cotton candy and jelly beans and Ferris wheels and corn dogs. That's what the therefore should say, right? But the therefore instead says in the text, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Wow. Because I have this special relationship with you, this is what I'm going to do. See, the testing results in the purification of the faithful, and it results in the praise of God. Therefore, it is seen as good, and as something that makes God worthy of praise. See, one of the things that we need to remember as we look at our faith, that even in suffering, there is a telos. There is a directionality for God. We won't often be able to see the movement of it. We might not be able to articulate what God is doing. But for God, suffering is never for suffering's sake. It is about movement in the direction to which God is seeking for His people. That we might be refined like silver. And then eventually when God's time has been completed, He will bring us out into a spacious place. See, when we lament, we need to be sure that there is a purpose and a telos in God's plans and purpose. The suffering is never the ultimate telos. Like we saw in our psalm last week, that suffering is for a moment, but joy comes in the, moment, in the morning. There's always movement. Now, as we talk about telos and suffering, I think that a temptation for us is often to stop prematurely from where God's ultimately bringing us and taking us. Uh, in, in my family, we have this issue, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. When we get into an elevator, I become hypervigilant because not everyone in my family is so vigilant. We'll get in and we'll push the floor for the tenth, the button for the tenth floor, and we'll get up to the fifth floor with other people on board, and it'll open. And guess what? Somebody does. They start to walk out of the elevator, grab them, and say, "This is not our floor." I think we do that sometimes with suffering. We're supposed to get somewhere, but we see the fifth floor, the door opens, and we just we escape the elevator, and we think that's ultimately where we need to be going. Here in this psalm, the ultimate end and the ultimate telos is not bringing the people of God into a spacious land. It's not like that scene happens, and then you get the, the, you know, the, the message flashes across. It says, the end. This is what it's all about, was just bringing you forward. No, there's something yet to be done even after We've been delivered from our suffering. So what would God's ultimate purpose and ultimate tell us be? And it seems to be from this psalm that God's people will have additional reasons for participating in His glorious praise. Through our suffering, God gives Himself more opportunities for us to speak of His awesome deeds. That's what we see happen in verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. So that my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt offerings of fatlings. With the smoke of the, sac uh, of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls 
and goats. So you see and you recognize this, this movement and this purpose is ultimately that we will come into the house of God. That we will do something in response from our time of suffering and as a response to God's deliverance. Now I'm going to be honest, there's this thing about paying vows that's awfully confusing to me. What's happening here? What's going on with this notion of paying vows? It's common practice. In the Old Testament, you find it in Jonah 2.9. Jonah says, But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to God. Psalm 22.25. When you come, uh, from you comes my praise to the great congregation, my vows I will pay before those who fear him. Psalm 50 verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. So in a time of hardship... It was a common practice that people would vow that upon their deliverance, they're going to offer something to God. Now, there's three different understandings in terms of what's happening with that vow, and I just want to introduce you to those briefly. Uh, the first understanding is that the purpose of a vow is to win a desired favor from the Lord. So the vow is a bargaining chip for us. So if you get into a hard place, say, for example, you've got a job you don't, you don't want. You don't like your job. It's a dead-end job. It doesn't pay well enough. And so you start praying to God. Say, God, give me a better-paying job, one that I enjoy more. A week later, you still don't have a better-paying job, so you have to up the ante. You say, God, okay, God, give me a better-paying job, and when you do, I'll give you a 5% cut of my salary increase. And you pray that for a week. It doesn't do it. You need to up the ante again. Maybe by the time you get to 15%, you get the job, and then now you owe God what you vowed to him. I don't think this is at all the sentiment that's being expressed when we're speaking about vows. The second understanding is that a vow is an expression of or a way of acknowledging something new about God or ourselves that was revealed in the middle of the hardship. Here I think about a person who is, is hard-hearted or, or, or who is greedy and they won't share with anyone and they lose everything and they find themselves in a place of destitution. And at that place of destitution they say, if I ever... Get to a place where I'm wealthy once again, I'm going to live completely different with my resources. So the vow, therefore, is not an effort to manipulate that I will be once again restored, but is simply saying, if I am, I'm going to live and conduct myself differently because I've learned something through this experience. The third option is that the vow can be a way of affirming one's confidence in God's good intention and actualizing hope. Here I think of the... What seems to me to be a general kind of storyline in, in romantic movies where, you know, one person has, has cancer and they're laying sick in the bed and the other, the spouse says, when you're, when you're healthy, we're going to be on the beach together and we're going to walk down the beach at sunset and guess how the movie ends? There they are walking down the beach together at sunset. It's this, once this has been delivered, this is what life will look like and some see vows in that way. And, and however we understand vows, of course, I think number two and three are, are more compelling. But the takeaway is that once our suffering is restored, that's not the ultimate telos of it. it it's, not, it's not just like, hey, I'm healthy again, because in our health, we now have a responsibility to live towards God in a different way. We now have additional reasons to praise God, because God has been at work in restoring us, not just to our former selves, but Lord willing to, to a person who has more reasons to praise. And, and when God delivers us from those hardships, from those sufferings, if our health is the ultimate tell us, that's insufficient because God wants us to take that message 
and for that message to be shared in as public of a place as possible. That's what's going to happen in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Come and hear all you who fear the Lord, and I will tell of what he has done for me. Now, here's the way to, you know, this is the easiest translation. I would do it if I could do it, but I can't, so I'll tell you about doing it. You know when you're a group of people and someone, you know, they do that whistle thing that gets everyone's attention? That's what this verse is. Pay attention, guys, because I'm going to tell you what the Lord has done for me. In verse 17, I cried aloud to him, and he extolled, uh, He was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has given heed to the words of my prayers. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love for me. So you see the movement that, that the telos that suffering takes us to. It's not just that I got better. But I got better, and I'm going to go in a public place, and I'm going to make sure God gets the credit for it. And that's the ultimate telos of life, and it's the ultimate telos of sickness, is that God would ultimately receive praise and glory. But, but there is another form of movement that we see here, and this is the movement from community speech to individual speech. If you're paying attention in this psalm, it's in the 12th verse, of the 13th verse, where we will have a change from communal language to individual language, I, 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 I which is this recognition that, that when it comes to praising God, there's this corporate thing and then there's also this individual thing. It is good to sing songs when everyone else is singing songs. But at some point, your faith needs to develop in such a way that you're not just saying, we believe this, but where we transfer, where we say, I believe this. We worship God because it needs to grow into, I worship God because... This is the movement of our faith where our faith becomes our very own. So God gives us these experiences that we ourselves might see his faithfulness. And as a response, we as individuals will testify in the midst of the people of God that God once again has done it. And so he goes to the temple. And he echoes in many ways what was done corporately earlier in this psalm that now becomes an individual thing. So you'll notice 66 verse 5 was a very communal call. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among mortals. That's the community voice and community calling. But now it transfers in the latter part. Come and hear all of you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for me. We need to get to that point where we have our own. I will say what he's done in my life. The ways that I've seen him at work and the ways that he's delivered me as an individual. Again, it's to move from general to specific, from community to individual. And so in verse 8, there are all the people, there is this, this group act of blessing God, and yet it culminates in 20 where an individual says, then blessed be God. So we want to grow and to develop in a part where, where we ourselves don't just corporately participate in this, but we as individuals do it because we have our own testimonies of God's faithfulness and of the ways that God has been at work. So I believe that the telos of this psalm is all about the praise and the worship and the glory of God. That's where individual elements of our lives are heading, and that's where the whole directionality of the world is heading. If it is the, the why that can sustain any how, the why is that we know. We know where all of this ends. People from all across the world, every tribe and every tongue and every nation, gathered around the throne. 
recognizing God's sovereignty. That's where it's all going. And we want to be a part of groups of people who do it, and we want to be expressing our own individual faith as we do it. And as we go through this life, we need to be constantly moving towards our individual concrete testimony of God's faithfulness. And so perhaps a question you can be asking yourself this week is how can I use the events of my life as another source of glory for God? In what ways can God take these events I'm going through and give glory to His name? That, that, that ultimately the telos isn't about what happens with me, but what happens with God as He works through me. And so I wonder, and if we have time, but we don't, I wonder, what has God done that is praiseworthy in your life? I mean, if I open it up, would you have any specifics? Would you simply be able to say, well, God is good, or could we say, what's something that's happened to show God's goodness? And I think that we'll find that there are so many specifics, so many examples of God's goodness and of his faithfulness. I'm, I'm thankful for the church family who, who expressed their thanksgiving to this congregation because, because Jack's life fundamentally was about giving glory and honor and praise to God. That's what he longed for and that's what he desired. And so in the thanksgiving of the way this congregation has acted, that ultimately brings thanksgiving to God. God was glorified through his life and I believe God was glorified also through his death and through his memory and through his ongoing work and influence in our lives. May we be a people who ultimately want to see all people saved, and will tell them of the good deeds that God has done. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. As we enter into the world, we enter knowing that we go by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of God, and by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way, there'll be some folks in the back to pray with you. We'd invite you to come back.